0: Good evening and welcome to the first of three debates among the major candidates for president of the United States. The candidates are independent candidate Ross Perot, Governor Bill Clinton, the Democratic nominee, and
1: President George Bush, the Republican nominee.
2: Debate prep continues, friends. On the road to Trump-Biden at the end of the month, we've got another doozy to watch with you. The triple threat that defined the 90s. Of course, I'm talking about H.W. Bush versus Clinton versus Perot. The first of their debates. We're all going to watch it on my Twitch channel. Twitch.tv slash JustinRYoung. It happens Monday, Labor Day, September 7th, 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Again, Twitch.tv slash Young. Follow me right now so you don't miss it. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific. The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Politics! Politics! Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for September 4th, 2020. Who let it be September? I'm Justin Robert Young, a forlorn Justin Robert Young because it has been damn near a decade that I am not normally at home. Right now, no matter where my home has been, be it Florida or California, if it's Labor Day weekend, I have Georgia on my mind because I am normally in Atlanta for Dragon Con. A riotous, amazing uh, a moment for which, uh, I mean, so many amazing memories. Normally, I'm in, uh, in the hotel, you know, the, the strange mix of 80,000 nerds in the world's finest cosplay. Mingling effortlessly at the Hooters on Peachtree, where Drake once knew that she might be the one to complete me. With a bunch of college football fans there for a kickoff in what was the Georgia Dome and now is the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. But we will survive yet another thing lost in this horrible plague world. Uh, We will be uh, we will be back and better than ever uh, soon enough. But salute to everybody that uh, has either watched me do this show live at Dragon Con. Watch me do any other show live at Dragon Con. Uh, It's a bummer. But this show is not a bummer. For those of you who like it when I get into journalism talk, oh baby, I've got a conversation that I'd like to have about anonymous sourcing. This, of course, in relation to a story in The Atlantic about Donald Trump calling fallen World War I vets, losers. We also uh, have a new jobs report in. And of course, we will open up the mailbag and take all of your questions. We also have a very interesting interview about truth commissions, the concept of truth commissions globally, domestically, when they are used, why they are used and if we will see any used in the near American future. I thought this one was great. It was very, very informative to me. I hope you guys enjoy it. That's coming up a little later, but first.
1: Here's what, I will, here's what I will point out and this is what I think is important. I'm not suggesting that they shouldn't run their story. They're, I, it's not my place to suggest that the people who represent that empty seat right there can make their own decisions uh, about what stories to run. They're entirely entitled to doing that. Uh, what I think is uh, important is that greater weight should be granted to those who are willing to put a face and the name with specific claims. And I spent the last hour in here talking to all of you because I'm putting my face and my name with this administration's positions. And in the course of reporting, I think it's important, based on my own personal view, for those kinds of quotes and those kinds of stories to be given greater weight than just anonymous sources. To suggest that somebody who's willing to put their name and their face and their title and their position, along with the story that they want to tell, that deserves some added weight as people are reporting out individual stories. And I think this is the case that I hear uh, from journalists uh, as they're evaluating whether or not to uh, report based on anonymous sources here at the White House. I think that is a credible claim. The problem, the frustration that I might be showing just a little bit of right now uh, is that uh, there are times when there are anonymous outside voices voices, as is the case with The Washington Post story, that are given greater weight than on the record su- sources from the White House when it pertains to information about what's happening at the White House.
2: Oh, a blistering response from the White House. About anonymous sourcing. The dangers of anonymous sourcing. Why do you maximize the anonymous source voice and minimize the people that are putting their name on it? And I'm speaking to you, of course, about the story from The Atlantic. I'm going to paraphrase this lead from Jeffrey Goldberg the editor of The Atlantic, who wrote this article. When President Donald Trump canceled a visit to a French cemetery near Paris in 2018, he blamed rain for the last-minute decision, saying the helicopter couldn't fly and that the Secret Service wouldn't drive him there. Neither claim was true. Trump rejected the idea of the visit because he feared his hair would become disheveled in the rain and because he did not believe it important to honor American war dead. According to four people with firsthand knowledge of the discussion that day, in a conversation with senior staff members on the morning of the scheduled visit, Trump said, "Quote, why should I go to that cemetery? It's filled with losers." In a separate conversation on the same trip, Trump referred to the more than 1,800 Marines who lost their lives at Belleau Wood as "suckers" for getting killed. Out of respect to the White House, who we just heard from, let's read the rebuttal from the president who has put his name on a response. The Atlantic magazine is dying like most magazines, so they make up a fake story in order to gain some relevance. The story is already refuted, but this is what we are up against. Just like the fake dossier, you fight and fight and people realize it was a total fraud. Supporters of the president point to declassified communications uh, between the military and Secret Service during his trip to France, the one under discussion that showed that indeed there was low visibility and that's why they didn't go visit the cemetery. That is what we know factually. Here's something else we know as a fact. This is an article that has gone viral. This is an article that is based entirely on anonymous sourcing. Now, let me make this clear because I want to separate two things. Because I I suspect that when I push back on this article, the reaction from some of you will be, but obviously this is true. Donald Trump has said that John McCain was less than a man for getting captured and he likes to celebrate the people that weren't captured. So let me just say this. Personally, Justin Robert Young, the human, do I believe that it is possible, if not likely, that Donald Trump said these things either in jest or Or with the utmost seriousness, sure. Donald Trump is somebody that has a complicated relationship with the military. He shoots from the hip and he seems like somebody that would be a bit of a nightmare on a road trip. Seems like somebody that could get a little fussy and sensitive and, you know, start spraying off wildly. So sure. Do I think that that's possible that happened? Why not? But I don't want to talk about that. Whether or not you believe 100% that Donald Trump would absolutely say that, or whether or not you believe it's absolutely untrue that Donald Trump said that, is not the issue here. And quite frankly, I don't really even want to talk about the argument from the president's supporters' side. That, say... This obviously isn't true because of the, de- the declassified documents or Donald Trump's own quotes. The issue is that during the Donald Trump administration, we have had a explosion of anonymously sourced scoop stories. I've made fun of them on this show as who farted and where office gossip. And this is indeed yet another example of that. This is not tied to a policy position. This is quite simply, did you hear what Don said, office gossip? And that's fine. There's a space for this. In fact, I think that there are reporters who do it excellently. And I will put Olivia Nuzzi at the top of that list. She had a great article about uh, the, the state of the Trump administration and who likes who and who doesn't like who. And that, to me, was framed and portrayed in a way that was understanding of her sourcing. She's going to run a slam book in the same way that you would in high school. Does that reveal what some people really think about others? Sure. And in the concept of a campaign where obviously nobody's ever going to go on the record because they don't want to portray that they are not on the right team, it makes sense. The context is key. Here, you effectively just have a hit piece. Whether or not it is the sources that are using the Atlantic as the the, the hit piece or the Atlantic are twisting or maybe even inventing the words as a hit piece toward the president is unclear. But there is no doubt that somebody is swinging a hatchet. And that is where we get into a problem with anonymous sources. Anonymous sources are black magic in journalism. Yes, they are effective. Oftentimes they can be the most effective. But every time you use it, you are tapping in to a reservoir That you cannot overdraw without corrupting yourself entirely. You are drawing against your reputation. You are drawing against your ability to say that I am doing things the right way. This kind of story in another era would have been roundly criticized because it's Gossip until you get somebody on the record. If somebody says, I was there with Donald Trump, Donald Trump told me that these people are losers, it's a different story. Why? Because now there's not a direct pipeline between grievance and Target. Somebody has to wear the shame or blame because they put their name on it. This is not a partisan position. If if you just started tuning into politics in 2016, trust me. In fact, I'll prove it to you. The clip that I played at the beginning,
1: the one that
2: was indeed from the White House, pushing back against anonymous sources.
1: Uh, what I think is uh, important is that greater weight should be granted to those who are willing to put a face and a name with specific claims. It wasn't from the Trump White House. And it's not about this specific issue. No.
2: The voice you heard was Obama press secretary Josh Ernst. And he was pushing back against a Washington Post story, oddly enough, about a growing humanitarian crisis on our southern border because Central American immigrants were sending their unaccompanied minors across the border. (laughs) Which is another story for another day. I want to just sum this up by saying this is not about liberal bias in journalism for me. What I want to say is that there's a reason that you use anonymous sources sparingly. There's a reason that you only hope to use them when they can then either bring you tangible, hard evidence. So you can say, we got these files. And furthermore, an anonymous source gives us these quotes clarifying the numbers that we see in these files, right? Or you quote them anonymously because the information they have is so spectacular so over the top so impossible to get that it warrants it this is neither this is simply office gossip now it's fun trust me the reason why you want to go out drinking with reporters is because they're going to tell you stuff like this stuff that They can't nail down, but is really fun to hear. (laughs) Trust me, it's great. Here's one more, and we're going to really dig in the weeds here. The thing that I don't like about this story is that it's written by the editor of its outlet. The other guard against anonymous sourcing is you have somebody at the top that's able to weigh in one hand or the other, whether or not this is editorially worth it. Whether or not the Atlantic can bear the expense of casting this black magic spell that will eat away at our credibility. If you are the top of that food chain editorially, then you are just kind of an autocrat. You are speaking for everybody else that is a journalist in your operation. Now they have to bear the weight of your decision to run with four anonymous sources. And that, I think, is not only bad for The Atlantic, not only only do I think that that is bad for the reporters at The Atlantic, I think it's just bad practice. It's the blanks, stupid. We don't know. We don't know. Donald Trump has wanted the conversation to be about the economy. That led him to get over-aggressive when it came to believing that the coronavirus was behind him. That cost him greatly in the polls. And now we are seeing uh, a different Trump because he realized it's the virus, stupid. But the further we get along into the summer, as now summer will officially be kind of over, right? Labor Day is kind of the end of the end of the summer. We wonder, the collective we, how much the economy will play a role in voters' minds on November 3rd. And before that, if they send in a mail-in ballot. And more specifically, how much will Donald Trump be able to claim that the economy as it was humming before coronavirus is indeed still there i've told you guys that we uh, only have a few jobs reports yet to go by my count we'll, we'll only really have one maybe two after this actually yeah one really unless you know there's there's leaks about the jobs report In November, you know it'll be September to October, and then that's it. So we will get a September jobs report. These are are big, and so far, the news has been good, including uh, the jobs report that just came out. Payrolls increased by one point three seven million. In August, the Dow Jones estimate was 1.32. But here's the number. The unemployment rate dropped to 8.4 from 10.2. Expectations had been at 9.8. The talking point from the Trump campaign is comparing the unemployment rate when Obama and Biden ran for re-election in 2012, which was around the mid 8s so their their issue is, or their point is, hey, look, they 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 won re-election on this unemployment number. We we're just uh, <laughs> taking the long way around on a good economy. Now here's the bad side. Uh, despite the Dow Jones getting up to twenty-nine thousand at the beginning of the week, profit taking has been rampant, and the stock market has collapsed over the last two days. I think that is people just uh, kind of readjusting their expectations despite the fact that it was a good jobs uh, report. I think that a lot of the inflation of the the, the stock market was you know kind of the, the the blind leading the blind. But there we go. that those thems them's the facts here uh, as the economy turns in our collective. Election consciousness. Politics. They ask me, Did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I showed sure the If you would like to be part of our mailbag, you send an email to theyoungamerican at gmail.com. We begin with Sir Dude Named Ned. Hey, sorry if you already addressed this point, I'm a bit behind. In your first RNC recap, you talked about the focus on Black voters, and your analysis circled around the idea that Trump is trying to win the Black male vote, and will that pay off? I don't think that the Black vote is the target here. The purpose is to assuage the fears of white people that actively consider themselves not racist. Trump is trying to counteract the bad taste that is left over after years of mainstream media discussion about racism, that has been thrust down our throats. This is an emotional connection between Trump and racism that will prevent many muggles from voting for him, and that includes a sizable portion of, of middle class white people sitting on the never Trump fence. Sir Dude, I appreciate your email. I've seen this a lot. This is kind of a Twitter narrative that this is not really about appealing to black people, this is about appealing to white people who would like to see black people appealed to. And I I think sometimes an appeal is just an appeal because the fastest way that you could get those white people to believe they're not racist is to see a groundswell in black Trump support. So I, 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 I think that sometimes that criticism is more along the lines of Donald Trump is actually racist and this is him being super racist super insidiously racist, that he is doing the double pincier racist move of being not racist, but only so he can appeal more to secretly racist people. And when you really lay that out, it becomes a little Pepe Sylvia for me. Aside from that, Donald Trump's numbers are up with black male voters. And... The Biden campaign knows it. Trump campaign knows it. If you look at some of the crosstabs, even in polls where he's losing by 9 to 10 points, he is anywhere between you know, 11 and 13 or 14 percentage points with black voters full stop. He got eight in 2016. There are outlier polls that have him in the 20s, and I don't believe those, but there is no doubt that he is doing better with black voters in 2020 than he did in 2016. Anything beyond that, I think is just things that are orbiting the phenomenon. Matt writes, I'm a little bit more familiar with sports betting than political betting. Now that I know a ton about sports betting, but whatever. They say in sports betting, the odds and lines aren't created to be accurate. They're created to get action. And the lines move closer that uh, uh, it gets to get underdog people betting. Do you think that this holds true in political betting? That maybe the odds are a little inflated for Biden to get the favorable bets in, and now they're shifting to move a little action. All right. Some just, all right. So if you're not into sports betting and you're not into political betting, this might be a little dorky for you, but let's lay it out. So the sports betting that you're talking about, Matt, are lines. So, in let's say, uh, my beloved Miami Heat, which are now up 2 0 on the disastrously overpraised Milwaukee Bucks. Let's go ahead and look at that line right now. What's the line in the Milwaukee Bucks game tonight? Those in the know say that the Bucks will defeat the Heat by five points. All right, so trusting my voice assistant, that means that Vegas has this at Bucks minus five. Now, that's what you're talking about, Matt, when you say that lines are set to get action on both sides. That means that there's enough people that are like, well, the Bucks are the number one team in the NBA. They lost the first two games. There's no way they lose three games in a row. They are going to blow out the heat. Five points is not that big. Of a final line. But then meanwhile. The people that are interested in the Heat. Are like. Well they did just beat this team twice. So. If I'm getting points. Then I want to take that. That is what that five point line is. Now when you bet that line. It's effectively. Like. The Miami Heat are starting the game. With five points. So from the opening tip. No matter what. Number you see on the screen add plus five to Miami. And then at the, end, at the end of the game, even if Miami loses, they win with that plus five. That means you win your bet. Best I can see, there are no lines on, let's say, the national popular vote. There's no Biden plus two or Trump plus three or anything like that. That would be designed to get money on both sides. What there are are prediction markets. So you are buying like a stock, the candidates, at certain times. So it's like if during the depths of coronavirus, you were like, yeah, I want to buy Trump now because he's in the dumps. It's 30 cents. And now he has risen and it's 50 cents. You are making money on that theoretically. So it's not. An odds, it's not odds or a line in the same way that sports betting is, if that makes sense. By the way, the betting markets have stayed at about 50-50 for the last week. Scale writes in, greetings from kangaroo land. Scale's from Australia. Attached uh, to this email is part of an email that went out to all Victorian registered firearms owners. And he did. And this is a fairly accurate summation. TLDR, wear the mask and socially distance or we will take your gun. Bonus round. The police have also started going door to door questioning the thinking of people who have posted support for anti-lockdown protests or generally S-talking the government regarding the virus. No matter your position on guns, be glad that you live in America, a nation that respects your civil liberties. From my cold dead hands, I fear my government We'll be all too happy to oblige. Yeah, Australia getting raked this week. The The video went viral of a, a pregnant woman getting arrested in front of her kids because she uh, posted a Facebook group saying that they were going to protest the lockdown. Little ag, little ag from uh, from old uh, from old Australia. Anthony writes, hope you're doing well. Yesterday, my evening was such that I hung out with you for day four of the RNC. I just want to say that I was really impressed with the stream. Not only your coverage, but the community in general. I'll admit I'm a Trump supporter. I wrote his name in 2016, and I will again in 2020. Knowing that you have a lot of liberals on your podcast, I fully expected a night full of Trump bashing from the viewers on your stream. But I was surprised to see that it wasn't that bad. Yeah, there were people bashing Trump, but they were also there defending Trump. More importantly, I felt people were able to express their feelings and opinions without fear of being attacked. We could simply just agree to disagree and still be friendly in the chat. I'm 51 years old. I live in Vermont, the whitest state in the union. But I feel like our country is more divided now than it's ever been. And I think mainstream media is responsible. They frame everything in an X versus Y context. And this needs to stop. It's the only way to heal this country. You're already doing that on your programming. And for that, I'm proud to be a Patreon supporter of PX3. Thanks for all you do. Well, thank you, sir, for the, for the uh, kind words. Every once in a while, I like to indulge myself and read a compliment email. And, and this is it. Oh, I feel good about myself now. I, I will say this. The Twitch community that we have built, Twitch is not necessarily known for substantive or uh, interesting or nuanced political conversations. But the community we've built, I am extraordinarily proud of. we got great mods, we have great regulars, and we have a a group that is committed to creating a space online where we can actually have at least free reign to express who you like. Whether or not you think that the person is wrong in their opinion, everybody can be united on one thing, pointing out when I get something wrong. And that's the way I like it. And finally, we will wrap things up with Josh. Josh writes, I love the show, and I normally appreciate the way that you look at things with a genuine attempt to see all sides and usually avoid false equivalencies and other fallacies. This is why the way you've been referring to the protest has been bothering me. In the last episode I listened to, you said the word riots more than protests, and I find that troubling. There have been a few small breakouts of actual riots in the now nearly 100 days of protesting. But they are by no means happening nightly. The GOP frames it in a way because they want to scare white suburban moms. The media frames it this way because their corporate masters are all about civility and want this over. And many others follow along to not sound like extremists, but the reality is really far from that. I suggest you watch some of the live streams from the numerous protests on the ground and see what's actually happening with a critical eye and healthy skepticism for the narrative that's being thrown around. You'll see a handful of uh, thrown water bottles. Occasionally, someone will throw a firework. But these things are not riots. Riots require a group to be responsible, and often the perpetrators of these actions are successfully singled out and arrested by the police but that doesn't stop the police from coming back later to beat the whole crowd until they disperse. This stuff is messy, and there are some who take advantage of the situation, but to consistently refer to these protests as riots is a gross uh, mischaracterization. This is a three-month-long protest that has had a shockingly small amount of violence considering the seriousness of the reasons for the protest and the ungodly number of people who have been involved. Josh, a lot to unpack there. Thank you for your email, first and foremost. I admit some of this is a little personal for me. Well, here, let me let me let me take this uh, piece by piece. Number one, uh, I don't watch a lot of cable news, nor do I particularly follow my news on Twitter. I am not a stranger to the unicorn riot live streams. I have tried to do my best to keep an eye on them. indeed. Some of my the people that I do populate my Twitter with are often people who are positively framing these protests. So let me make this clear. There are far, far, far more protests than there are violence or property damage, aka riots. Obviously, part of this is a semantic game, But I want this to be 100% clear. I'm not saying that every time that there is a demonstration, there is a riot. Far from it. However, politically, if we are talking about what is moving the needle politically, if Joe Biden is not co-opting the protests and he would have to go out and march in one to do it, or be out there saying, I am in full support of this in a way more than just saying it from his basement. Some way that put the national spotlight on Joe Biden's involvement in these protests. Then the only thing that matters is however sparse the moments when these get violent. And I'm well aware of how often they get violent. Let me remind you, I do not live in the suburbs. I live in Oakland. And it is indeed the UPS store at the end of my block that got its windows shattered last week. It is indeed the modern times brewery right down the road that got its windows shattered last week. We were woken up by the police kettling protesters and trying to disperse them when some of the violence got out of hand. Our Alameda County Courthouse, which is right across the lake from where I live, was burned not once, but twice. Either times for things that the Oakland Police Department did, once in solidarity of the movement in Portland, and once after Jacob Blake. I'm not here to draw a line on why that is. I'm not here to draw a line on who's causing it or if it's outside agitators or if it's, you know, Antifa or people driving up from San Leandro to live out their purge fantasies. I'm not here to say that. I don't know. I don't know. I'm in my apartment and by and large I live a solitary life because my wife is terrified of getting COVID and I work from, I already work from home. So aside from my run in the morning and then uh, I'll, I'll walk around the city and not talk to anybody. Because they allow me to just buy beers on the street now. I don't know if they allow it, but no one's arresting anybody for open container. So I'll literally just walk around and drink beers. It's actually really fun. It's kind of like Epcot. But aside from that, I don't really talk to a whole lot of people locally. Uh, I'm, I'm just kind of living a solitary life. So I don't know. Aside from watching the live streams, aside from following the hashtags, I'm not aware of exactly where the point, where the, the spark of the violence is coming from. But it's undeniable for me personally, and so maybe I'm biased, it's undeniable for me personally to say, yeah, it's there. And if it's there, and if it photographs, well, I think it's going to be politicized in an election year, specifically if one side believes that they can get something out of it. It is A broken window is a broken window. And yes, there might be one broken window for every 100,000 protesters. But that broken window is going to photograph and that photograph is going to spread. And if that's what we're... Is that the political football we're, we're throwing around? Then we're going to throw it around. Because at the very least, that broken window is something that is tangible on some level. All right. The young American at gmail.com. Again, TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com is where you send your email. Politics. What is a truth commission? When have they been implemented? What do they yield? And are they truly a indispensable part of healing long ingrained trauma within a community? It's something that a few people have been thinking a lot more about as we go face-to-face dealing with some of the issues in our country, and it is something we will learn a lot more about now, because we are going to welcome our guest, Kelly Schwabgo. She is the Provost Fellow in the Social Sciences and PhD candidate in Political Science and International Relations at the University of Southern California, and Director of the International Justice Lab at the College of William & Mary. You can check out her latest articles, Demanding Truth, the Global Transitional Justice Network and the Creation of Truth Commissions in International Studies Quarterly and Why Race Matters in International Relations in Foreign Policy Magazine. You can also follow her on Twitter at Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y underscore, Schwabgo, Z-V-O-B-G-O, which is why. I tiptoe so delicately around her last name in this interview. But let's go ahead and welcome her to the show. Welcome to the show, Kelly.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: Now, Truth Commissions. This is this is a, yes. a very very interesting concept to me, and I'm sure for for many folks who are listening who might not be fully versed on exactly uh, uh, the the definition of the concept. So let's go ahead and start there on the meta level. What is a truth commission?
0: Sure. Uh, So a truth commission is a historical inquiry into political violence, typically implemented by national governments in the aftermath of internal armed conflicts, authoritarian governments, uh, mass atrocities, uh, you name it. Uh, In general, um, to be considered uh, a truth commission rather than a commission of inquiry, um, truth commissions are, um, they consider a pattern of abuse over time while engaging with the affected population. So that kind of what distinguishes it from, let's say, an investigation into a single event. Um, like the Bloody Sunday Commission uh, in the UK. That's the Commission of Inquiry, where truth commissions are really interested in uncovering systems and patterns of abuse generally by governments against a civilian population, but also potentially between uh, government armed forces and an armed opposition.
2: So since they are issued by the government, are truth Mm -hmm. commissions... A, a binding in terms of finding people and punishing them? Or is the objective to understand the pattern and make it public in a, a big, loud way?
0: Right. This is a great question. So uh, truth commissions are really um, about the history, capturing it, um, through testimonies, uh, investigating documents, visiting field sites, um, taking pictures, soil samples, um, all of that, running different types of analyses. It's, it's, it's mostly informational. Uh, the goal is not uh, to punish perpetrators. It's not a retributive mechanism of transitional justice, which is this toolkit or portfolio of tools that states can use to account for um, historical past violence. Rather, it is a restorative mechanism of um, or modality of transitional justice. It's really about getting to the truth. And unlike other types of transitional justice, let's say uh, criminal prosecutions, they are broad and participatory by nature. And so they bring together um, survivors, victims, families, perpetrators, experts, et cetera, all to share their experiences of political violence with a view of informing the nation and informing the world. Um, and one of the central goals is, you know, um, you can't uh, you can't advance into the future without reckoning with the past. And so it's to establish an authoritative account of past violence and have this be something that's passed down um, and that uh, critically acknowledges um, experiences of political violence um, and. Uh, is you know just the beginning of um, opportunities for uh acknowledgement recognition and redress
2: before we get to america's history or lack thereof with truth commissions let's look abroad uh what are examples sure. of famous truth commissions outside of uh, our american borders
0: sure um so i actually hate talking about uh <laughs> famous truth commissions Sure. Um, but well I, then we we we, um, we 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 can this, make it brief yeah yeah no, no, no. no. Yeah, no. Um, this is intended to be funny. Um, I'm an academic, so I'm a little bit socially awkward, and my humor is not always there. No. Um, so, yeah. So, um, an example that you know most people will know is this is the African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which um, began its work in 1995 um, and concluded in 1998 with publication of its report in 2002. And so, this commission uh, looked at uh, four decades of apartheid government. So, that is a Um, a race-based authoritarian government led by a white minority over a Black majority population. Um, And so that was headed up um, by Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Pastor Alex Borrain. And so this is one of the best well-known commissions. We also have a lot of data from this commission, including video footage from the commission hearings. Um, It was ever-present in South Africa during its operation, hours on the radio. Every Sunday night, there was the Truth Commission report where you know, um, everyday South Africans would have um, at their ready on their television screens, video from hearings um, by the commission. So that was really quite a powerful experience. So it's a really important commission, and that's why a lot of people uh, know about it. Um, but actually, there were many commissions that preceded South Africa. South what kind of put truth commissions on the map. Um, we call it sometimes the poster child of truth commissions. But there have been you know, more than 80 commissions uh, in more than 60 countries since 1970. And so some other ones um, that are well known that I have explored in my work as well are the uh, historical classification commit commission in Guatemala that investigated um, the internal armed conflict and genocide in Guatemala, as well as um, the commission for um, truth reception um the Commission for Reception, Truth, and Reconciliation in East Timor established um, after uh, East Timor won its independence from Indonesia. And this was looking at uh, Indonesian occupation and uh, the armed conflicts that had, um, that uh, resulted or that transpired during um, this uh, 24, 25 year period. Those are some uh, pretty um, emblematic commissions. Um, but there have been commissions, and I guess leading us into the next uh, set of questions, in North America. There have been two commissions in Canada. The first was established in 2009. That's the uh, that's Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And more recently, the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. And believe it or not, um, the U.S. has had a National Law Truth Commission. This was in the 80s. Um, initiated by Congress. And that was to study Japanese internment and relocation during the Second World War.
2: Huh. Wow. I didn't know that that was that, that was done in the 80s. I, I, I guess uh, I mean, certainly it would make sense because it feels like that was there was a, a large topic of conversation about Japanese internment in the 90s. I guess that is probably part of the reason why it was something that was so prevalent at the time.
0: It was, um, and the basis and the commission formed the basis for uh, subsequent apologies as well as reparations for Japanese Americans. And so um, sometimes uh, every uh, my colleagues who perhaps don't study comparative politics or international relations, or um, uh, uh, and who don't know about this commission, and even some of my colleagues who do study transitional justice, will be like, "Oh yeah, there was a commission in the U.S." And so it's not, it's not really commissions although um as part of this you know set of tools we call transitional justice need not be established in um what we could call traditional um or conventional political transitions right in fact in the u.s context you could say uh, abuses have never ended and so it's not that you know things are we, we've moved past these things and so it's too it's, it's too historical to engage in a substantive way, indeed, um, for many uh, minoritized groups in the United States, including Japanese Americans, uh, but also notably um, First Americans, um, Native Americans, and uh, Black Americans—you um, know, every immigrant group—I think also of, um, of Chicanos, um, Mexican Americans—you know, the border crossed them, and so. There are a lot of, uh, there are many groups that we could consider or argue um, that um, to whom the US is duty-born in terms of providing transitional justice, which um, can be conceived broadly as, you know, truth, justice, reparations, and guarantees of non-recurrence, which um, we typically interpret as institutional reforms. And so these are the four pillars of transitional justice, um, and it's on governments to provide them. And so that's why, you know, in my definition of truth commissions and in most of the literature's definition of truth commissions, there is um, this uh, part of the definition about it being authorized or inaugurated by a national government, even though we do see subnational implementation of truth commissions, including in the U.S.,
2: so let's talk about that for a second, because you uh, uh, have, have laid out a very compelling uh, a set of examples of times that this has happened, both here and abroad. Uh, the, my question is, why? what are the the benefits of it being from the government as opposed to, let's say, a nonprofit organization or a media organization that is doing a uh, consistent work or or a gigantic project that is intended to make a splash. Why does it have to be from the government?
0: All right. Um. So for um, scholars like myself who study um comparative politics, international relations, we do um center the state in many ways. Um. In part because it is a state. It is a state that has an obligation under international human rights law to provide transitional justice, that is truth, justice, reparations, and guarantees of non-recurrence. These are enshrined in the 1997 UN principles on combating impunity. And also just the general principles are reflected throughout a variety of documents from the UN charter to case law, from the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, from the um, uh, from the European Court of Human Rights. This is um, a set of Um, obligations that states must provide. Now, of course, it does not preclude non-state actors from providing them, right? We see civil society um, sometimes having their own commissions because the government is unwilling or unable to um, deliver one. Um, We also see um, at colleges like mine, I work at William and Mary, uh, where there has been an initiative called the Lemon Project, where uh, historians and archivists and sociologists and other scholars have come together to uh, investigate William and Mary's 300 year relationship with black Americans in Virginia, right? Um, and so institutions definitely can do that. So some some things that have emerged out of that process is renaming um, some buildings, including Astor Lemon, who was one of the persons enslaved by the college um, after whom the Lemon Project is named and also now one of, um, our, our, uh, one of our halls. Um, Letting Me Marry. I know uh, other schools have done something similar. I think USC has been investigating um, its relationship um, to Japanese Americans during um, the period of internment and relocation. I know Georgetown has been doing a lot of um, historical um, inquiry as well in terms of the persons who were enslaved by the university and who were sold to bail out the the university when it was um, falling into financial disarray. And so I think it's important to have accountability at multiple levels, at the instit- at the community level, the university level, the state level even. And that's why we've seen commissions being inaugurated um, in some U.S. states. Uh, but it's really national governments who are obligated under international law, a variety of um, instruments, principles, um, pieces of case law to provide transitional justice, one mechanism being truth
2: commissions. I would imagine that also the fact that they don't happen all that often would be their own benefit if issued by the state, that this would be something that uh, would would be looked at as a special occasion that, that we are going to take a moment now and study very closely something that is of national importance. Uh, of course, that is a great idea on paper, uh, and as we mm-hmm. are a modern politics program, I am sure many of the listeners and listening to this can't help but start to think, okay, well, let's say that this is issued by Congress with our, our current cast of characters, that in a very polarized world, it would be almost impossible for something to come out of Congress or the White House that wouldn't be looked at uh, on on one way or another as being antagonistic or or biased how does the truth commission work around that or how have they worked around issues like that in the past
0: all right uh, that's an interesting question so uh one thing um that is critical to my understanding of truth commissions and of transitional justice and which i um which i cover in uh, my article demanding truth and that i'm exploring in a broader book project is the role of civil society in initiating demands for truth, in helping to design a strong and effective mechanism. So making sure that there are enumerated in the commission's mandate, strong investigative powers. So we're talking jurisdictional powers, um, like the types of abuses, um, like what types of abuses a commission can investigate um, a broader range being preferable to a narrow range of abuses, and also operational powers, like the power to subpoena newspapers or police records, et cetera. And then finally, um, the importance of civil society to uh, the operation of the commission and ultimately to follow up on the commission's findings and results. And so while commissions are created by governments, Um, I don't want to uh, present a story where, you know, it is all because of, you know, the grace and benevolence and goodwill of governments, right? Um, These are the fruit of political struggle. And so, but governments, you know, are constrained by things like protest um, and other forms of contentious politics, by um, external pressure, naming and shaming by international non-governmental organizations like Amnesty, right? Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch and others. Um, and you have you know, experts like the folks at the International Center for Transitional Justice who provide uh, uh, frameworks and uh, manuals for how to do this and how to do this well. And the idea for the commission is for really it to impanel a, a, a group of commissioners who are independent. So this isn't, you know, we're not asking, you know, um, Mark Meadows to be the commission chair, sure. right? Yeah. Um, we're asking, you know, people with expertise, with a reputation, with um, a professional background to do this work. Um, and, you know, in places where you're just putting in, you know, um, your your putti, or your, um, you know, your uh, your deputies. That that process, you know, would not be considered credible from the start, and would likely um, trigger uh, complaints um, and criticism from civil society, which has, again, initiated these demands for truth. So these are national bodies, but that are that are really spurred by bottom up pressure by uh, what Keck and could call pressure from below. Although, like I've noted, pressure from above from external actors is also helpful in uh, pushing governments um, to do this. Now, this is true of national level truth commissions um, as I studied them. Um, the story is a little bit different um, at the state and local level. And so part of it can be, uh, you know, uh, Uh, neighborhoods coming together to request a commission. I know there's some movement in Culver City um, back in LA um, where I was before moving out here uh, to Virginia um, and also um, the legislature um, in uh, Maryland. Um, Both houses um, passed a, uh, a bill to create the Maryland lynching truth and reconciliation commission. So limited to Maryland and focusing on this particular crime during the period in which lynchings were occurring um, in the South during Jim Crow. And there you have, again, you know, legislators working with civil society, working with local historians, et cetera, um, in terms of putting together the language um, for the bill and ultimately to, um, to execute the commission.
2: I would imagine... That especially if you're talking about a federal truth commission in America, which you know, we are a very large, very loud country with a very large, very loud federal government, that staffing would be crucial because, as you mentioned before, the idea that somebody would be put in that wasn't credible to the pressure uh, that is being applied to create the commission in the first place would almost uh, hamstring it to the point of irrelevance from the start. Uh, is the person leading the commission almost the ceiling for how successful it could be?
0: Usually it's a panel of commissioners. There might be like in the case of Africa, you know, Desmond, um, co-chairs like with Desmond Tutu and Alex Lorraine, but really it can be a broad swath of individuals, um, selected, um, in the, the best of circumstances, um, via, um, uh, a merit-based nomination and application process And something that I've discussed with um, with um, some of the colleagues working at the National Center for Transitional Justice. That you know appointments by you know the president, let's say, are not ideal. We've seen how that um, can produce um, suboptimal outcomes in different contexts. And so, a public nomination, a public nomination application process. Uh, to make sure that you're really putting together a team to do this, right? And if we're talking about a national level commission in a country as large as the U.S. to cover, you know, an extensive history, that's really going to require a team. Um, but again, I just as I wouldn't vest, you know, all of my expectations in the government, I wouldn't also do that in terms of the commission officials. They certainly play an important role. But I'm thinking of the staffers who are actually, you know, going into towns and into cities to record people's testimonies or who are, you know, going to the local newspaper to get those records on um, microfiche or who are going into the libraries. So it really is an extensive process that depends on, you know, multiple, um, uh, multiple, that's not even enough, like a multitude of people um, (laughs) to do the people who are who are entering data, who are analyzing data, who are making sure that um, survivors are prepared um, to speak and have the appropriate counseling and psychological services they need to um, to recount these um, these very um, painful uh, memories, either that they experienced directly or as they um, recall and as they pass down from um, their um, their from their relatives, from their friends, from their neighbors. Um, and so I, I, I just always think of them as like a, as like a group effort and it's really yeah. a national effort right um, to, to rent to, to bring together these processes um, now you mentioned a point um, kind of about you know so much ground to cover what degrees is practical there are lots of different models that we could get there so I think there there is a place for commissions happening at the municipal level um, we've seen that in places like Greensboro Um a few decades ago, we've seen that um, there have been initiatives coming out of Boston um, and uh, Boston, Los Angeles. I've heard of um, conversations happening in Minneapolis. There have been commissions in Detroit. Um, then there's the state level commissions that mentioned Maryland. Also Maine had one, um, and that was a, a shared commission between the state government and also the Wabanaki people, uh, the indigenous population there. Um, and then at the national level. We don't have to do like all of American History Truth Commission, right? So there was the Commission for Wartime Relocation and Internment. And so that was focused on Japanese-Americans. There could be one focus on African-Americans over a particular time period, let's see. Um, although really with the 1619 Project and all these different um, memory, memory, um, different forms of memory production over the past few years, you know, it may do as well to have something that is able to connect, especially for, for everyday Americans how what happened, you know, in 1619, even before 1607 upon arrival in Virginia, you know, just a, a short drive away from my house um, here um, at Jamestown um, up at Black Point um, connects to, you know, what happened during slavery, connects to what happens during the Civil War, Reconstruction, Jim Crow, the Civil Rights era, and how really there is an interconnectedness of events, and so um you know you can go group by group, you could go abuse types by abuse type. um so we could look at you know um, relocations, and that's happened to several groups, um including um, including first Americans. Um, there are just lots of different ways um, to uh, to to bite at the apple, but we have to be willing to, to, to try to start somewhere.
2: Yeah. Uh, so let's call, uh, discuss rather calls for specific truth commissions in our modern era. Uh, uh obviously at the tip of many, uh, people's tongues and, uh, specifically moving their feet to the street are issues of police violence and specifically anti-black violence. Uh, is there a growing movement for a truth commission on these issues?
0: Oh, definitely. So some of these ones that I've mentioned to you at the municipal level, including um, Boston. So these are um, these are to address issues around policing, but also very influential policing, um, economic um, inequalities, um, disparities in um, in uh, in opportunities for education. These are all really um, interwoven housing discrimination, et cetera. Um, and so, yeah, no, that's, that's precisely, I think, what is motivating these calls um, in recent months, um, as we've been experiencing um, a period of awakening that I hope we're able to continue to um, to to build on that uh, momentum, uh, because it's truly um, it's truly extraordinary what we could accomplish um, with you know pressure being continuously applied.
2: So let's let's say that uh, folks listening were uh, very uh, interested in the idea of applying pressure to the federal government for a truth commission or really their own state or local st- uh, city government for a truth and reconciliation committee. Uh, would your recommendation be based on historical examples uh, to n- narrow down the focus or or ask for very specific Uh, uh, things that need to be looked into or to uh, motivate people to, to staff it? Like what, what are the good first steps?
0: Yeah. So good first steps um, are centering the affected population. Right. And so if I live in, you know, X, Y, Z town and I've just been so inspired by this, you know, I've been listening to the politics podcast and now I want to have a truth commission you know, I'm gonna start, you know, mobilizing. It's like, okay, but who is this for, right? Um, so I think it's always important to to center um, the affected population and to consult them throughout the process on what kind of commission they would want at the city or at the state level, right? And so for some, they're gonna want depth. And so that'll mean focusing on, you know, a particular type of abuse, like, um, like racial terror lynchings. For others they're going to want breadth, and so they're going to want to connect, you know, lynching then to you know police shootings now and mass incarceration and how that ties back to, um, you know, the reconstruction era, etc. And so, wherever there's an interest in a commission, especially when the interest or maybe some of the um impetus is by individuals or groups that are not themselves the population of interest or of concern should be really mindful to engage um, to engage affected population um, and then see what they want I think part of um, truth commissions are historically understood as victim centered modalities of um, of transitional justice and so to the extent that the right people are being surveyed and consulted that's how you produce something that's valuable to the community that's being served um and not just you know we can you know congratulate ourselves on having uh implemented a truth commission in the spirit of what we've seen in countries like south africa right i think sometimes we can get so um different folks can get caught up in creating something good that they kind of miss the point of it, who it's for, and sometimes exclude or marginalize their voices, which, you know, is a way of adding or compounding on the trauma, right? Uh,
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that there is, uh, there's uh, obviously moments like this, and we've experienced it uh, several times over the last 10 years, and certainly there is a tremendous historical precedent for it, but, uh, the the question after you get done with the protest is okay. Well, what do we do? <laughs> like, what? How do we? How do we go forward? And uh, uh, aside from going out tomorrow night and the night after that and the night after that, uh, I think that there is a question of, of of what is what is the gain and and is the gain for the people that are uh, truly the the victims here? Is it worth it? And is it better? Uh, uh, this is, I think, an example of uh, a, a way that we can just go forward with greater education. Like you said, I really want to highlight something that you touched on early, that the the point here is for everybody to be able to share their truth and, and every, mm-hmm. every part of the system that this isn't a, I mean, again, uh, if it's an investigation into an incident, then you're finding culpability and guilt and, and all that kind of stuff that by its very nature sort of has divisions if a truth commission is there to literally have everybody say what they're doing and, and just be a compiler of a larger historical record then I think man uh, I don't know anybody listening to this podcast that is it tries to always bring context and and meta uh, understanding to complex issues that wouldn't appreciate that uh so uh, i would like to thank our guest here uh kelly schwavgo is that it you got it oh i'm so excited i got it i'm so excited uh she is the provost <laughs> Fe- me. she is the provost fellow in social sciences and a phd candidate in political science and international relations at the university of southern california and director of the International Justice Lab at the College of William and Mary, please check out her latest articles, Demanding Truth, the Global Transitional Justice Network, and the Creation of Truth Commissions in International Studies Quarterly, and Why Race Matter, uh, Matters in International Relations in Foreign Policy magazine. And you can follow her on Twitter, at Kelly underscore uh, Z-V-O-B-G-O, Kelly Schwabgo, uh, on, uh, on on Twitter, Uh, uh, Please, thank you so much uh, uh, for joining us, Kelly.
0: Thank you for having me. It's been a
2: pleasure. And that will wrap up our week on the Politics, Politics, Politics program. Man, (laughs) this is so weird because in the middle of me recording this episode, a very strange thing happened. Brian Brushwood, my co-host on the Night Attack comedy show, Text me, because we've been doing these happy hour streams. It's a little hour-long night attacks where it's usually just me and Brian BSing, but sometimes we have... It's a little bit more casual. We have people stop in and stop out. and uh, For whatever reason, through Austin Connections, in the studio for Night Attack Happy Hour, the world's strongest man, Mark Henry, former... WWE World Heavyweight Champion. In case you're new to the show, I'm a massive wrestling fan. So I'm I'm just on Cloud9. I'm so happy. It's almost as happy as how I get when I read the names of the Titanic $10 tier, including Lord Generic Frenchman, Dr. G, Jacob, D. Laser, Dallas, Danger Taylor, you boy, Craig, Zombie Doc, Gazer Beam. Martin, Government Unfiltered, Andres, Neil, Archie, IPMP, Logan, Darren, Daily Tech News Show, Jay Millius, Paul, Olin and Angela, DL, Steven, Chad, IPMP.com, Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, Robert, TCIMP, Glenn, Wolf, Brand, Chili Scoop, Brad, Richard, just another pilot, Mike. Jim, the Jen, Bannon, Ellen, MacBook Pro, Frozen Summers, and Andrew. You want to be on their level? Yeah, head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com. You gotta follow me on social media. You do so at do so at Justin R Young on Twitter and Instagram. Follow us live. All of our live stream coverage four days a week and then of course we have our debate prep on Monday night that is all at twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young and get on our newsletter freepoliticalnewsletter.com Till next time this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics others talk about politics and still more they're talking about politics but this is the only program that dares talk about ho
1: ho <laughs> Three. Yeah. Yeah.